Welcome to the What's Next Sports Podcast, where each week we will be taking a look back at the main headlines from the previous seven days. We'll be offering you insights, opinion, hot takes and headline acts from the world of sport. You can follow the podcast on Instagram at whatsnext.pod and Twitter at whatsnextsport. Listen, feedback, enjoy and as always, trust the process. Welcome to March and welcome to episode 15, gentlemen. First things first, as always, before we dip into the headlines, how are we both? I'd love to say it's been another great week. Uh, quiet weekend, walking into Monday, test positive for COVID. Lost me taste and smell today, so Jimmy, it can only be better for you. 20k in the legs, taste and smell intact, marches <laughs> off to a flyer, gentlemen. Great. Sorry to hear Sorry. that, Tinners, but um, we'll maybe have some slightly better news for you shortly. So we'll kick in with the uh, the headlines from the week. Let's recap. I've got 15 this week, and the first one is a good one for you, Tinners, or maybe the second one, depending on how you look at it. But let's go. Lennon resigned and Celtic got back to winning ways, whilst Rangers played out another high-scoring thriller in Europe, which none of us got spot on. But Tinners, sympathy vote. We'll give you the vote for this week, the point. With your 3-1 shout. But also in Scotland, St. Johnson cemented their place as the second most successful team in Scotland this decade as they won the Scottish Cup, beating Livingston at Hampden. Leicester KO'd from Europa as Arsenal get through and then draw Olympiacos in Europe again. And then elsewhere in football, there was a stoppage time scrap at the Vitality as both João Pedro and Jack Wilshire picked up two yellows after 90 minutes as Bournemouth saw off Watford. Notts County played in a coffee waste made strip and served up a Puskas nomination worthy goal, whilst Nile Ranger played his first game of professional football in over three years for South End, and he lasted 10 minutes. Colin Morikawa won the WGC that wasn't in Mexico as Matthew Wolfe putted one sideways, shot a first round 11 over, and then withdrew. The event was marked with the whole field wearing red on Sunday to show their support and send their best wishes to Tiger Woods who was recovering from a car accident earlier in the week. Cricket's return to terrestrial TV lasted less than two days, sparking debate about the pitch and an Alex Hartley v Rory Burns Twitter exchange, whilst New Zealand and Australia moved their whole T20 series and will play the rest behind closed doors. Italy lost in the Six Nations again as Scotland and France were cancelled. The Falcons won with the last kick of the game. LeBron James played his 1,300th regular season game Alicia Scholes made her Manchester Thunder Super League debut. Raymond Van Barneveld won a PDC Tour title on the first weekend out of retirement. Canelo won. Tommy Fury won. And that means that the boxing pound-for-pound king conversation is still alive. And then last but not least, a personal favourite, Michael Owen fell off his bike. (laughs) Couldn't have happened to a nicer bloke, could it? I saw that. That was great. Any talking points from any of those other than Michael Owen? I've missed that one. That's a good one. Uh, short game's a good game. Genuinely, two-day cricket. Lads must be buzzing. Pitch or no pitch, win or lose. You've just got to be happy just to get it over with that quickly. Just quickly on that, was it good bowling or bad batting? Uh... Bit of both. Bit of, bit of both. Worse batting. I, I think they just thought it was... I, I liked how the, at the end of it, they were like, well, it just didn't spin. It didn't spin. The people just kept missing the straight ones and they were fine when it was spinning. Can't believe they only picked one spinner. Where was Bess? You've been asking for him for weeks, Jim. <laughs> straight ball's the hardest ball to play. You can get out in two different ways to a straight ball. Yeah. Three if you hit it. True, true. 
Bowling so. at the stumps. It's the same at second team level. Is it, is it international? Hard to believe. Simple um, game. When you get to that level, Jimmy, it's all in your head. It's nothing to do with ability. In my head, very easily. <laughs> Johnny Bairstow on a, on a pair with myself, though, going into the next game. Yeah, good comeback for him. Really that, good comeback. That rest period did in the world of good, didn't it? <laughs> but that's the problem. When you, you send someone home from tour for a rest and all they can do is quarantine, they're not going in the nets. So when you call them back, they're only going to come back worse. And even if they go in the nets, he's gone in the indoor school where it ain't spinning. Mm. And it's... What about um, what about the Indian commentator offering out the fans on a live television though? Yeah, that's ben, ben Stokes trying to cheat them. Cheat them. Is it Coley or... Yeah, he claimed the catch. That should have been in the headlines actually. But... Um... Yeah, but Ben Stokes, he's an honest bloke. He's a really good guy. So um, we don't give him any bad press on this podcast. No. But, um... There was some bad commentary, though. In all, in all seriousness, sitting watching it, I, I think I ended up turning off. It was some bad commentary. If you disagree with me, you can see me outside. <laughs> I can't believe you're throwing that around Channel 4. <laughs> Fucking hell, it's a matter of opinion. Well, it's not, oh, is it, Jimmy? It's either out or it's not out. It's not an opinion. Well, exactly. I'm not going to jump on a flight to India, isolate for 10 days, and not meet him outside because I think Stokes has caught it. Well, to be fair, they're there for the next month and a half because the next test is there, so the pitch isn't getting any better, and then all the 2020s are. But anyway, enough cricket. Jimmy, we'll let you go first this week. What's next? Oh, mate, I'm still... Uh, I can't stop thinking about that. Can't, could you imagine David Lloyd offering fans out behind the back of Lords? Jimmy, what's next? Sorry, um... This week, I want to focus on the refereeing decision from the weekend of sport, mainly looking at um, the England-Wales game. And my headline comes from The Telegraph, and it's referee Pascal Gauzet admits he got it wrong with two Wales tries against England. Discuss. Yeah. Um, just on the rugby itself, we'll talk about the referees in a second, but I watched it on Saturday afternoon. I know Wales are now three from three. They've won the triple crown. Again, for the third week in a row, I'm not convinced that they are actually that good. And three from three flatters them an awful lot. They've got an impressive back line. But if you're taken to the pitch with 16 men, and I'm going to say it, I'm going to say it's biased. He was officiating that game horrifically. And I know he spoke to Christoph a couple of weeks ago and he said, in the big moments, referees with the TMOs, they get the big decisions right. Well, they haven't. If he's coming out after the game a day later and saying, I got them wrong. England have probably got a right to feel aggrieved that they're 14 points down. Now, I think England lost that game for themselves through the penalty count, etc. But you're fighting the referees, arguing back to Owen Farrell when he's telling him what he can and can't say. They're interpreting the laws by their own definition. A knock-on does not have to hit the floor. You just have to lose control and the ball go forward, which it did do. So anyone saying it's a knock-on can lick them because they're wrong. <laughs> Lovely. And then that's just the rugby. We've also got the cricket third umpires and the football referees to talk about. But Jimmy, you've got some strong opinions on the uh, the referee and the rugby. Well, I, I I let my opinions go in our group chat on Saturday. I just I can't get my head around the arrogance of rugby in general. But the rugby referee, um, just him to say to Owen Farrell after that first try, let me speak. Farrell has allowed him to speak and give his point and then he's walked off before Farrell can start asking him questions. They almost think they're on a pedestal above everyone else and they're untouchable. And I get that rugby's meant to be this, oh, it's the thug sport played by gentlemen. 
But you wouldn't get that in football when all 22 players are surrounding Mike Dean, demanding red cards for each and every one of them. However, just I think there needs to be a bit of get off your moral high horse. You're not as good as everyone else. You're a rugby referee because you weren't very good at rugby in school. Like, there's a reason for it. I, I agree. And I think in rugby, the one thing everyone says about rugby is that the respect is there and Owen Farrell sort of accepted what the referee was saying and went away shaking his head, but didn't go back at him once he'd already been told to go back to your team or I've said my piece or whatever it was that big Pascal phrased it. And I think that has to change to some extent because I appreciate it should only be the captain that speaks to the referee. I think that's right. And in rugby, those channels are there. And I think football could learn from that, but you can't then shoot down that conversation if that's what is being accepted within the sport of your captain can speak to the sport, uh, to the referee, whether that's Henderson playing for England on the, in the Euros or whether that's Farrell playing for England at Twickenham or the Millennium Stage and wherever they might be, if that is what is accepted and what is agreed between the officials and the captains and the teams and the 14 other players aren't voicing their opinion, you've got to at least listen to that. Point of view. Do you think there's a middle ground between the way footballers treat the referees or approach the referees and how rugby players approach the referees? Do you think there's a middle ground in between that would work or do you think it's it would have to be one way or the other? Do you think it would work if footballers were to say, Jordan Henderson, you're Liverpool's captain, if there's a decision that you're not the, the team's not happy with, you're the only one that can talk to the referee with that one person? Cause we, I think if you started booking players, they'd very quickly... But stop doing it. The, I mean, you saw the the Callum Hudson Odoi penalty shout against Man United, and they're not meant to go over and watch the the um, the video referee like on the on the screen, and they're two yards away, and he's here shouting at him, and he doesn't get a yellow card. Truly, that's the point where they have to stand and do that in rugby. Would that happen? I, I'm not. I'm not sure it would, or something mm-hmm. would certainly happen. I think there's a middle ground in them two sports where they have to find it, and it's just accepted at some point. I don't disagree. I think the, the, the tough one with the yellow card is in football, as Jimmy says, you can book people and you can say, you're not allowed to do that. You're not allowed to crowd the ref. You're not allowed to hound it. You're not allowed to come and look at the screen. Yellow cards, that doesn't happen again. In rugby, that's obviously a sin bin. So are people going to enforce that? Are they going to penalise the whole team by putting them off the pitch for 10 minutes? I don't know whether that can count. I sympathise on occasion with football footballers because when you see decisions that are horrifically incorrect they're professional footballers playing for their career playing for money a lot of them on big bonuses appearance fees clean sheet bonuses goal scoring bonuses etc i think a lot of it is passion i think sometimes people are quick to jump on footballers and say that's unsportsmanlike look at them hounding the referee etc they're passionate about what they do they're playing for the bad they're playing for their own Pocket money, effectively, yes, but they're playing to win, they're playing to survive a relegation, they're playing for Europe, they're playing for a title. They're probably allowed to say to someone, you got that one wrong. Now, that doesn't need to be half a yard from his face with 10 of your other teammates coming around shouting, yes, yes, yes. And in football, without stating the obvious, there are a load of different languages being shouted to the referee. So the noise and what he is hearing or selectively hearing will be far worse. So that one channel of communication does have its benefit in rugby, but it's only ever going to be, certainly at international level, and I know at international level it would be the same in football, but you don't see it quite as much. 
that channel of communication needs to be kept clear, but it needs to be allowed and it needs to be honoured from both sides. And I agree with what Lewis Dunk came out and said the other day. He stood there, he's being asked, he's scored a free kick that's been ruled out, then allowed, then ruled out again. He's having to come and stand out in front of the media. Has a referee ever come out and had to justify a decision? I think it's happened once. once And it wasn't, he wasn't forced to come out. Newcastle, back in like 2004, drew 0-0 Old Trafford, Man United, and... Shearer was denied a penalty in the 87th minute. And I think the referee at the time came out and said, I got it wrong. It should have been a penalty. And if, if, we would, if it was to happen again, I would award a penalty. But do you not think part of that with football is just the fact that they're still coming into a phase where it's the second season of VAR. A lot of players wouldn't be used to it. They will be used to having a lifetime of being brought up playing football where they're trying to get their argument across to the referee. Whereas now the referee will look at VAR Nine times out of ten, they'll come to the correct decision. Mm-hmm. But then with rugby, because the video assistant referee has been in play for so long, it's almost second nature to then leave it to the ref. As Christoph Ridley will say, in the big occasions, you will back the referee and his this, video ref to get it correct. There's certainly going to be a generation of footballers that, like your Phil Fordens, who will only, have only played with, more or less, have only played with VAR and give that 10 years' time. That is all that will, will have happened and players will accept that being a millimetre offside is a millimetre offside and that's it. I think it's. The, I think we have to get a few of the other rules kind of cemented out with the handballs and stuff. I know it's slightly changed as the season's gone on, but I think we have to get all that cemented out before they can even accept that VAR works one way or the other because I, I still don't think some of the players are, are certain on what they're allowed to do and what they aren't allowed to do. I think it's a great point, Jimmy, to be fair, and I agree with you, Tin, is there, that actually players growing up they will become accustomed to it. Rugby players accept that. And actually, that's probably what's most frustrating this weekend about the England-Wales thing is that people accept the TMO. They accept that the decision is correct because as Christoph said a few weeks ago, you get the minutiae, you get the correct decision. And what's frustrating is that he then comes out and says he's got it wrong. With VAR, the emotion is taken out of football and that's frustrating as a fan, that's frustrating as a player. But ultimately, as you say, nine times out of ten, they're getting the decisions right by the letter of the law, even though it's so marginal, even though it's so disrupted and some decisions take a while, some don't take that long. There's no consistency with it. There's no communication to the fans, whatever it might be. Compare that to cricket, where DRS has probably got it right out of most of the sports in terms of players being allowed a review they're allowed a certain number. They've then obviously changed it recently to umpire's call or within the last few years, umpire's call, you don't lose a review, etc. Over in India, they're looking at some things from one angle saying, no, not out, get on with it. But the thing about cricket is as well, I think cricket's found a way to maintain the review system, but also as a fan in the crowd who's been at a cricket match and seen a wicket go up and then you've got the tension of a DRS going through I think that almost adds to it if that makes sense but cricket exactly cricket is the only sport where at the moment the DRS the VAR the TMO adds to the sport you think of that Headingley game last summer two summers ago where Stokes scored his unbeaten runs the drama of that was that Australia had already butchered all of their reviews they weren't able to review that LBW appeal on him which was stone dead hard lines Australia and he's able to go on and win that game yeah Whereas in rugby football, because players don't get that opportunity to review, and if that's something that they look at, maybe they should look at it and say, right, you're allowed that one captain's challenge. And Owen Farrell would have used it early on. They'd have got the decision overturned by the sounds of what Pascal's saying in his post-match 
interview or whatever, um, they'd have then kept that review. And I don't I think, think that's a bad way to go. I think the mad thing of it is a football sort of fan watching it from the background. We're two years now into VAR in the Premier League. And of those two years, there's only been half a season where there's been fans in the ground. Mm-hmm. And I think I was at Sheffield United last season when John Joe Shelby ran through for the offside. And when you're there, they had a big screen up saying, check and go. But they weren't showing what they were checking. You didn't have a clue. It was just a case of the longer it goes on, the more you think, right, there's a chance this could be given here. Mm-hmm. Even watching it at home, it's not as if on the TV, you can hear the communication between the referees, uh, Stockley Park, hearing what they're feeding back to him to say, hang on, we're now checking this, hold the game. Whereas I think there's a clip from the Australian A-League where you can hear the referee in conversation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think it's almost a case of developing that to the point where I don't know if that's the same at rugby. I've only ever been to watch Newcastle Falcons and normally I'm too gassed up to be sure what's even going on on the pitch, never mind. Double pints will let you off. Between the referees. So I just think there's got to be some sort of communication in football to then ease that up for the referees. But the cricket, as you said there, was bizarre to only see them check one angle a couple of times. So it wasn't just a stumping. It was also the Stokes catch. Mm-hmm. I think he did drop it. I think it did hit the ground. But there was a catch for India where they almost checked it a million times over just to make sure they're getting the right decision. So why all of a sudden change it for that one or two cases? Yeah, I think... Well, I, I can't say I think because I don't actually know. But in terms of for the cricket instances it seemed like they wanted to keep the game moving and that I'm not against. And I think in rugby, when you hear it and you'll see that you'll hear the referee call and you'll say, I think that might've been a forward pass and that passage of play, can you check that for me? And then the next time the ball goes dead, they'll go back to the initial offense. And that's similar to what the referee in the Australian A-League football was kind of doing in that clip that's doing the round where it seems to work and he's communicating to players. He can say, I've called it X phases out and that's, happened and that's fine because players then understand that that's what's going on but in the cricket when he's trying to get the game moving I don't mind that because you're trying to then get onto the next ball but you've got 14 players on the pitch 13 players on the pitch potentially a batter coming on waiting to go and they're saying "Mm, you've got to get a decision right and if you can just go "Uh, there's a stumping foot no you could see from half the the half of that one angle that the stumping Ben Folk's uh, took that wasn't given the foot was hovering but it was hovering above the line anyway so it was out on two counts but then also for the catch that Ben Stokes claimed now does he know that it's not carried or that he's dropped it or whichever order it was possibly but he doesn't know he's claimed it and he's all he said is have a look at it is I think a... for the fact it was given out on the pitch for him to only have a look at one angle and quickly dismiss yeah. it like that I thought it was a bit poor if it was a case of you're trying to prove that he had caught it, you can maybe say, "Yeah, fair enough." Is it a lack of? Is it a lack of experience? Because there was, there was chat going around that the the umpires and the third umpires and the the, the kind of the officials over there aren't as haven't got quite the, the experience that other umpires have that are around the world at the minute. Is it a lack of that, or is it just a lack of? Um, or, or is that just an excuse? The fact that if they are good enough to be at that level, they should be able to remember that they've got four, five, six cameras to check. And that they should be checking them all to get the right. Because at the end of the day, cricket, 90 overs a day, how many times does that actually get bowled? Very rarely. No one really expects it to be 90 overs anymore. 
you're not slowing the game down massively. You'd rather have the right decision, wouldn't you? So, I think it's I, I think it's just an excuse that that chat was floating around. But yeah, I think um, I think that is an excuse, and I think they they know because they train with it, and they were also using it for other decisions, both for England and for India at other stages of the game and in those same innings. But for them not to do it at those points. The best part of the whole football thing this week is not only is Lee Mason pulled up with an injury and can't referee this weekend's class, it's also that there was launching or in advance of football returning at the lower level. The worst named campaign in football is give the refs a hand and they're expecting teams in the Northern League in whatever football level they might be to give referees and officials a guard of honour to show support as they walk onto the pitch. Yet every single week, a referee is doing something where they are going to be in the spotlight. Imagine that. Manchester Derby on Sunday, which we'll come to later on. They're stood there clapping on whoever it is that's going to be there for there to be a boiling point halfway through the game. And for them to tell them how, how bad they think they are and call them worse than Shay. My yeah. team would love that. You can almost see him strutting on now. Every Man game is a testimonial. Hotspur goal. <laughs> Absolutely milking it. I think I think it's one of those things in the Premier League and VR that it it will it'll get ironed out, and it's just like you said, Jimmy. It's only the second season that we're used to it, and we're always going to complain about things that don't go don't go well. But give it some time. I think it'll. I think it'll. I don't think it'll be as good as the cricket, the DRS. Um, but I think it'll it'll get there at some point. Away from the refereeing decisions, what did you make of the rugby on Saturday, Doggy? Um. I think England have got some work to do. I think they've got to change the team. He can't stick with his old guard. And I think ultimately they've, England shot themselves in the foot by making so many errors. I think Atoji was probably lucky and that was arguably one of the refereeing mistakes of the day as well is that he kept saying next time, next time and then didn't penalise him. So he was so quick to give a try or to award a try or make key decisions and give penalties but he wasn't then convinced in his own actions to give the sin binning that he was threatening so much and oh, fart no shit that's the problem there <laughs> yeah i think uh i think pascal needs to pull up and have a weekend off this there week was um uh, to be fair this came towards the end of the game but there was a moment when paul Scholes's daughter's boyfriend was running through chasing a ball that was bobbling he had johnny may and farrell closing him down mm. and he's had an air shot and johnny may's then had one of the worst <laughs> air shots i've ever seen and that was too much for me. I had to turn it off. It's honestly, in, fa- in fairness, he is, chasers who think they can play football. He is Paul Scholes' daughter's boyfriend rather than Paul Scholes' son. Had it been Paul Scholes' son, we could probably jump on him a bit more. Mm. Oh, I'm not putting it in. Paul Scholes in midfield with a rugby ball. He would do bits. <laughs> yeah. He would do bits. Remember when his Willie fell out of short. Right, before this gets this goes somewhere we don't need it to go with Paul Scholes. Doug, you've got another headline act this week, don't you? What's next? I do. And so my headline this week is taken from the BBC a couple of days ago, and it is directly related to our headline act for this week. So the headline itself reads, Brendan Lawler, Irishman relishing opportunity to raise disability golf's profile. I had the pleasure of speaking to Brendan not too long ago, and I came away incredibly inspired by his story, his attitude towards the game, and his outlook on life and sport in general. Brendan made a post on his own Instagram page just yesterday about wanting to do something special for his birthday this year. And rather than receive gifts, he wanted to give. So he's going to be walking or running 10 kilometers a day for 10 days, 
to raise money for the Children's Health Foundation Crumlin Hospital, a place he spent a lot of time as a youngster. An incredible gesture that shows the true character of the man. All donation links can be found in the show notes and at Brendan's Instagram page. But without further ado, this week's headline act, professional golfer, Brendan Lawler. Brendan, firstly, I want to say a huge thanks to yourself for your time, for joining us this afternoon. And secondly, as always with our guests during these times, how are things? How is lockdown for you? Are you still in Ireland at the moment? Still in Ireland, yeah. Unfortunately, but we're still here. Uh, I was lucky enough, I got a week in Dubai before Christmas. So uh, I done a little training camp, met another disability golfer over there. And uh, went over my girlfriend as well. So we made it into like a training camp, but also a little holiday. So we went for eight days and it was great. It really split up the winter. Uh, got some really good practice done and it was a productive week. A little bit warmer than it probably is at home at the moment, I, uh, I bet. Oh, How are you spending your time at home at the moment? How are you filling your days? Yeah, um, I always like to be productive. Um, I don't like sitting down, can't watch TV for more than five minutes. So I literally wake up every morning around seven, eight o'clock, go out and do a 5K walk. Some I might jog it some days. Come in, have my breakfast, hit a few balls and do some sort of workout and then back do another walk that evening and I'm lucky enough to work with my parents we're an essential business uh, working in furniture and IT so I work in there two days a week so it's nice to have that as well it really it's great that you can focus on golf all, all the time but you need that little separation from golf and work so especially in times like this so I'm very lucky to have that no, that's awesome. I would like to go on record and say a huge thanks to Modest Golf for supporting this interview and arranging the time with yourself. And that is maybe a really good place to start. How did you become involved with Modest and how important is that relationship with the company to you and your your golfing progress? Yeah, like if it wasn't for Modest, I, I wouldn't be here today. I'll go, I'll go into how I met Mark and Ireland in the first place. It was literally, it just happened by chance. Like my mother always said what, what doesn't pass is for you or something saying like that. But she always believed that your path is set out and whatever you do, it'll fall into the right places for you. So I did an interview with an Irish golf magazine. His name's called Peter Finnan. And I had a few articles in that newspaper or in that magazine before and uh, just winning the Scottish Open and all that sort of thing. And, Peter said, I never actually got your full story. So one day he sat me down. We sat for, I think it was a three-hour interview or something. And we just had a yarn, had a talk about disability golf, about your own life, just all aspects of my life. And he couldn't get over sort of the journey I've been on, whether it was barriers I had to cross at at an early age or at an older age. So he knew Modest were a growing management company in the game and sort of invested in ladies golf, male golf and helping up and coming golfers to sort of fulfill their potential. So Peter said, I'm going to give Mark McDonnell a ring. I think you might be the right fit for him. And I heard him modest. I knew what to do. And I was growing up in Ireland. I was a good amateur player, but I never thought golf would be a full-time job for me. I never thought I was good enough at an amateur level. I was a good player, but... I wasn't the likes of Rory McIlroy or Shane Larry to compete on tour, but I could hold my own on a plus two or plus three handicapper. So 
I met with Mark and we had some great conversations of how I could fit into their business, really, of growing the game through inclusivity, working with ISP as Handa, and um, it's just been an amazing journey so far. And what's so fantastic about Modest is they haven't neglected me in any way because I'm a disability golfer. They've got me all the sponsorships to help me focus on golf full time. So they've treated me the exact same as every other person in their roster. And I believe that's the reason why they're so good. They treat everyone the same. They believe in equal rights, equal pay with the ISPS and the World Invitational. So they're doing so many things to grow the game in different areas. And uh, they're, I think other management teams will start following their processes and what to do. No, it's it's unbelievable and full credit to both them and yourself, of course. You have a condition called Ellis van Krevald syndrome. Can you yeah. tell our listeners a little bit about that and how it affects you? Yeah, so um, it was really, it was tough growing up, especially on my parents and my brother. Um, I was born, I never really had a condition until I was maybe two or three, but I was born with a hole in my heart. So I had to get a VSD repair at eight weeks old. It was meant to be a three months old. No, sorry, it was meant to be six months for the operation, but I was literally so weak, was on death's door, literally the morning of the operation. And the doctor said, we need to operate now or he's not making it. So the doctors operated. I was meant to be in hospital for three months and I was out in 10 days. So that's sort of, that's the anger or the fire I had in me to sort of kick on and, and get on with things and, Maybe it was from that young age, dealing with so many hospital appointments, so many knee operations. Maybe it's the reason I'm here today. But, so I got that done at eight weeks old. It was a quick enough bounce back from that, but the doctor said I wouldn't be able to drink, wouldn't be able to eat, wouldn't be able to walk. I'd have to go to speech and drama. There were so many things that said I wouldn't be able to do. And, uh, Thankfully, I can do everything that they said I couldn't do. And growing up, to be honest, I never, I was always smaller than the average bear, but I never saw myself as any different. I went to school. I got on with things. If I couldn't reach the butter off the top shelf, I'd get a chair. It was just any situation that came in front of me, I dealt with it accordingly that would work in my favor. So it was the same with school. Going into school, I was bully material. Could have got the shit slagged out of me for six, seven years. And I said, I'm not having that happen. So I felt I had an energy where people gravitated towards me. Sort of a bubbly personality. Like to make jokes. Sort of a cheeky chappy. And people sort of gravitated towards my attitude. And I made friends quite quickly, which helped. When you have friends and people try to give you a bit of crap, it's good to have friends there by your side. So your five, six years in school aren't going to be pure torture. So uh, growing up, oh, it was it was tough. People looked at you and stuff, but it didn't really bother me at all. I just, it was weird. My parents were always conscious of me going into town saying people were looking at me, looking behind. And I always thought they were looking at you because I had muscles or... <laughs> <laughs> I look good. So I, I always had self-confidence that nothing ever would annoy me or anything like that. So I think self-confidence is one of the biggest traits someone can have. And if you're comfortable in your own skin, nothing's really going to affect you. 
you carry yourself incredibly well and you've been on record before saying you seek to live and continue to to live as normal and healthy a lifestyle as possible and golf is a massive part of that yeah. what's for yourself in a normal non-covid world does a golfing calendar look like for you yeah so i turned pro in 2019 so 2020 was going to be the year where i really sort of had a full calendar and it was sort of wiped out but a full calendar for me is probably going to be about 15 events a year and maybe 10, 11 events where I'm going to promote the game, speaking about it, doing like press conferences at pro-ams and all that sort of stuff. So there's a lot more to what I do to play golf. I love to play golf. I love to compete. But I also love to promote disability golf by speaking about it at big events, by getting the word out, by getting more people into the game. And that's the lovely thing about golf. There's so many aspects where you can grow the game it, it doesn't just be playing golf. You can speak on the world stage about it, but my passion is playing. I love sort of speaking with my golf clubs, showing what I can do against the best in the world, at, say the Scottish Open or the DP World. So uh, speaking about the game is a massive. I love doing it, but I love playing the game too. I want to compete every day. I want to compete in tournaments. I want to try and make cuts on the European Tour. So... I'm just striving to sort of do things that never been done before. So that's the plan. Let's visit that European tour because last summer, Brendan, in the middle of the COVID lockdown, as golf and the European tour made its return with the UK swing, you received a sponsor's invite to compete at the final event of that swing at the ISPS Handa Championship at the Belfry. Can you give us a little bit of an insight into that event, the experience of the week, some of the names you were able to spend some time with in their company and also just how important that was for disability golf. Yeah, that was, it was such a great week. It was a pity the golf wasn't too good. I had a bad week, but I was one under after five holes and I looked at my dad's my caddy. I'm like, I'm going to go, I'm going to shoot a 66 here. <laughs> and then it went downhill from there. It just, it was completely bad after that. But there was so much media attention. Like I think I had five, six interviews before I went out then five, six interviews when I come in. I'm not making excuses for shooting a bad score, but there was a lot of media hype over. It was, a lot of, it was very mentally draining. It was your first European tour event and to have that pressure alongside playing. It was tough, but I embraced it. Absolutely loved it. I slept for a week after the event because I was so tired, but uh, the traction that grew with people from all walks of life got on to me. People with missing arms, missing legs, uh, teenage girls that had mental health issues, ladies looking to get into the game. It just hit so many areas, I couldn't believe. <clears throat> like, two days of golf can change a hundred people's lives. It was, and it was mind-boggling. I just, I played two rounds of golf on the European tour, done a few interviews, and about 200 people have suddenly got into the game, whether it's disability, ladies, so many people have contacted me about it. And that's the wonderful thing about inclusion in golf, that people from all walks of life, doesn't matter if they're small, tall, short, ladies, male, there's a spot there for them in golf. And that's the beautiful thing about it. How did you find the Belfry? Did you take on the 10th or was that a uh, layup job? That was a layup job. <laughs> <laughs> I hit five iron wings. I, I parred it both days, which was great. But uh, Belfry is incredible. I mean, the weather wasn't great that week. It was absolutely lashing rain for the two days. 
I'd love to get it on a dry day where I could get a wee bit more run. But uh, such a great experience. Even the amount I learned that week, if I got another chance to compete in the European Tour, I could take so many things from that, whether it was course set up, where to lay up, where to go for it. So many different areas where I learned that week. And that's the whole process of like being a professional. Learn every time you go out. So you either lose or learn. So that's what I love. There's, uh, there's another famous Irishman has been saying that for a little while. Um, the results and the scores of that week do pale into insignificance when compared with the impact of your involvement in the event, what that did for raising awareness of the European Disabled Golf Association. You're currently ranked fourth in the world in the world rankings for golfers with disability. What is the programme of events as it stands on a European and global scale for disabled golf? Yeah, so it's there's a full calendar, so there's about 20 events on it. Uh, I'll say EDGA is the short term for it. So on the EDGA calendar, there is a, there's about 20 events a year. And it's tough for people to go to because it's fully self-funded. So all the events you go to, it's out of your own pocket. There's no prize money. So it entices you to go because there's world ranking points. And if you get enough world ranking points, you'll get opportunities like the Scottish Open we played in, the integration events. So they're fantastic there. Them weeks are fully paid. You're playing with the best in the world on the best courses. But the message I'm trying to send out now is that the elitist of elite in disability golf, if we had a world tour that could play for some sort of prize money to run alongside the European tour would be, would give so many disability athletes a chance to earn a living from it. And also, I think it's something people might want to see. They love seeing Rory hit a 350 yards, but they might want to see a one-legged golfer hit a 280, shooting level par on the hardest courses in the world. It was quite funny, like, at the Scottish Open, Lee Westwood was teeing on the first, and a fellow called Juan Postigo was teeing on 10. And there was more people watching Juan on 10 than Lee Westwood on the first. And we couldn't get over that. Like, that's mental. And uh, I think people love to see a change and a change in golf is, it's not a bad thing. And uh, it would definitely do us the world of good and it would definitely throw out and promote the game even more. Is that global tour and I don't even know, potentially Paralympic involvement? Is that on the cards possibly? Yeah, Paralympics was shot down for 2024. So 2028 is looking like the next Paralympics, which is a good time away, but... I just, I think it's a wee bit ridiculous that's not in it. I thought when a, when the sport, when golf hit, was it 2012 when Justin Rose won? Uh, did he, was he London? Was he not Rio? Was he 2016 at Rio? 2016, it could have been. In 2016, I thought that would be a, just an ongoing effect when, when golf or tennis gets into the Olympics. I thought that sport would just get into the Paralympics straight away. But that wasn't the case about golf and we're continuing fighting the corner to get it in, trying to kick down the door. I actually got a message from Paralympic, the official Paralympic account on Twitter that week saying, congratulations, Brendan, it's great what you're doing. So maybe that was the official, what they needed to show that we have a talent, to show that we can create a Paralympics. There's so many players out there that we could have a competitive Olympic games Paralympic games and I think that's next in the cards for us and we'll have to see down the line 
That would be awesome and uh, absolutely well-deserved. One thing that we've managed to neglect already, or I've managed to neglect, how did you first get into golf? Uh, quite funny. I played uh, a game called Pitch and Putt. Did you ever hear of it? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's, uh, par threes, my uh, downfall. 18 par threes, but ranging from 40 to 80 yards, so quite short. It's uh, a lot of Irish professionals sort of start this way. Shane Larry started, Paul Carrington started. It's like uh, get your short game honed in before you reach the long courses. So I played this for probably longer than the average person would play it. I started at like the age of three, was making a national teams by the age of 11. And then I won my first All-Ireland at 14. And then I won my first adult All-Ireland at 16. It was the youngest ever. So I reached sort of a high level in pitch and push. And then I turned around to my dad and said, I think it's time to start golf. Just, you know, when you sort of reach a certain level at something, you want to move on to something else. So I was like, I think it's time to start golf. I'm getting stronger. I'm sort of in the gym now. And mum and dad always feared I, mean, I wouldn't have the distance or walking 18 holes would be a struggle. Now, it was at the start, but I just I got an addiction with playing golf, trying to get better. And I got cut like 15 shots in my first year. I cut, I think I was 30 down to 15. And then after two years, I was single figures. So I knew there was a talent there. And I was about 17 at this stage. So people usually start around 13 or 14. So I was quite late into the game. <clears throat> then I started making like local club teams, playing senior cup. Then I started playing the North of Ireland amateur events when I was off like two or one. So I knew there was a talent there, but as I said, I was never good enough to make it as a professional level. Then I found disability golf in 2018. And uh, my auntie Anne actually found it and said, would Brendan consider playing disability golf? He said it to my mom. And mom was quite, she was funny. She didn't want to insult me because I never, I was never any different. Played amateur level, went to school as normal. But mom asked me one day and I said, I think that would be just a nice road to experience. See what, see what it's like. I was always open to trying new things. So I said, I'll give it a go. So I think it was November 20, 2018, I played my first disability event. And going in as an amateur in Ireland, I was like, this is going to be a walk in the park. Disability athletes, what, how good are they? So I thought I was going in, going to walk this. And I came forth, got the biggest eye-opener I've ever got. Like people with cerebral palsy shooting level par, one leg, hitting at 300 yards. And probably the biggest learning curve I ever learned out of a game of golf because I knew what to do after that. I knew what the talent was and how good people were and how I needed, how good I had to get to take part in these events. So that's where it just kicked off from there. And I learned so much from that event. And then I went on to win three in a row. I won Troya, Germany and France, three in a row. And then just kicked off from there. I just knew this was something I loved to do. And then the interviews started rolling in. And I was very good at promoting it because it's something I have such an interest in. And it just all fell from there. And then Modest came and it's just the rest is history. 
Awesome. There are some incredibly successful Irish golfers, which I'm sure many of them could be the answer to this question, but within golf or even away from golf, who are your heroes? Who are your inspirations? Uh, my granddad would be an inspiration of mine because he's the one that had the par trees in the garden that got me playing at such a young age that believed in me to keep going and brought me down to put a club in my hand at a young age. And obviously, Tiger Woods growing up was, you want to get to that level, whether it's being a disabled athlete or an able-bodied golfer, he's the, he's the top of the, he's cream of the creme, and you want to get to his level. So I feel, <laughs> this is weird, but I like I wear red on the Sunday at disability golf events. So I want to be the disability Tiger, if you know what I mean. I want to change the game. Like, he changed golf being a lifting sport, going to the gym, being physical. I want to do the same for disability golf. Like, I'm an athlete. I don't want to be known as a disability golfer. I lift weights. I feel I'm in good shape. I can hit the ball far enough. I want to be branded the professional golfer that's competing. I don't want to be, oh, look at this disability golfer coming to make up numbers, if you know what I mean. So that's the message I'm trying to put to other disability golfers as well. Like, work is fucking hard as you can work on your body work on your game because this is it's going to get big at some stage and I feel you have to be ready when it gets big so I'm just working so hard to get there it's incredibly inspiring and just to close Brendan I want to ask some golf orientated questions that are relatively quick fire but they might lead on to one or two follow-up questions from so so favorite club in the bag driver sim (laughs) two favorite course you've played uh, the Earth Course in Dubai, Jamaica. What, what, what's your home course in Ireland? Uh, Carton House. Oh, no, it's very it's good. What's that good. like? Nice. Flat. Really, really good. Awesome. Uh, course you'd love to play? Augusta. Dream four ball at Augusta. Oh, uh, Tiger. I said this before. You know Kevin Hart? Yeah. yeah. Uh, he's not too much taller than me, so I went up out of place there. <laughs> <laughs> who else uh, Paddy Harrington love him if you weren't a golfer what would you love to be people say I'm not a bad businessman so I'd try being Elon Musk if I could <laughs> <laughs> best moment in golf uh, competing on the European Tour is probably one of them but also winning the Scottish Open at the Renaissance Club was a pretty proud moment for me Awesome. And one rule you would change in golf? Oh, if you land in a divot, you should get relief, I feel. Fair enough. Lastly, possibly not so quick fire and maybe a little more thought required. What for you is your number one goal or target that you'd love to achieve within golf, whether that's short or long term? There's so many targets. Uh, Like... I'm a dreamer. I feel anything is possible. And what's happened to date, I've had these visions in my head and people told me that there's no chance of competing on the European tour. There's no chance of getting sponsored. But the main goal of mine is, the short-term goal is getting more people into the game, first of all, from all walks of life, whether it's kids, disability athletes, because that brings on the world tour and that brings more competition into the game. Uh, also I want more people to be experiencing the endorsements and 
prize money like myself, uh, disability athletes. This I think this world tour has to happen pretty soon to entice disability golfers to keep playing and keep pushing on to be the best. And uh, we have great contacts there with Modest, Keith Pelly from the European Tour. Uh, I signed with Adidas today. That announcement was done today. So guys like this is going to really push on the message, push on about how important inclusion is in golf and also realising these guys are fucking good. Like <laughs> They're good players. And uh, that's what people are missing. Like These are athletes that are not just disability golfers, they are top notch, like they're top three. And uh, there has to be someone out there to support a world tour in sponsorship. Doesn't have to be a pile of money, but enough to entice people to go to tournaments and make them compete and have that fire in their belly that real pro tours have. I couldn't agree more. And uh, I think the work you are doing, you have done, and I'm sure you will continue to do is, uh, is going to be knocking on those, those relevant doors and we'll make that happen. Uh, hopefully, as you say, sooner rather than later, Brendan, it's been an absolute pleasure. It's been an inspiring 25 <laughs> minutes or so. Um, I can't wait to see you back out on the course. I hope that is sooner rather than later. And we wish you all the very best with all of your ventures as you move forwards, whether that's on or off field, because there is a lot to keep you busy. So uh, thank you so much for your time and we'll hopefully speak to you soon. Andrew, thanks very much for having me on. It was a pleasure. Cheers. Speak to you soon. You too. See you later. Incredible. And once again, a huge thanks to Brendan for his time, but also Katie and all at Modest Golf for their support and arranging the time with Brendan. Even listening back, I feel inspired by him and I can't quite put into words how amazing that half hour or so just talking with Brendan was. He's part of an incredible stable at Modest Golf who continue to do incredible things for all their athletes. Naturally, we wish Brendan all the best of luck with his endeavours moving forward. But, Tinners, what's next? Yeah, Doig, I haven't got a headline this week, um, but I thought we'd do something on our prediction. So our prediction at the end is going to be the Manchester derby. Um, so I thought we could make a little combined 11 between the two Manchester sides, just so I can prove how bad Manchester United are. Or hopefully you, you two will agree with us and that all their players are, are really, really bad. Um, so I don't know how you want to do, whether we, we just want to go through the team, do you want to pick a formation first between the three of us, or are we just going to go position, position and uh, and give a give a valid point for each one? Your section, Tinnis, well, however you want I, to do I it. I thought we'd just stick with a, a 4 3 3, three, three centre midfielders, two wingers, and a strike, and obviously the back four. Um, I'll start off with the keeper. I think it's a fairly easy one. Edison over the, the other two. I know we've discussed Dean Henderson and De Gea in the past, but I'm sticking with Edison. Yeah, no complaints from me. I genuinely think Man you need to change their keeper themselves, full stop. I'm not sure De Gea is their best keeper. I'd like to see Henderson playing, so absolutely. Edison gonna, for me, in goal. I'm going to throw a controversial, not a, in the way of picking, I think Edison is your pick. I think keeper number two would be the City backup. Stefan, yeah. That well, to be honest, Carson. genuinely, Carson. Jimmy. Scott Carson, three. <laughs> <laughs> I reckon, and I'd be in, we'll go through, yeah. and we'll do a combined 11, but then we'll do a B team for Man City, because I think that would be a more shared right. yeah. B team right. Man City so, Man U 11 City's B team beat yeah. Man U's first team City's B team would finish in the Champions <laughs> yeah, they League would, they would absolutely would um, right which is higher than Liverpool and Newcastle right um, right back <laughs> right, 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 right back who, who are you going for Jim <laughs> who's your right back uh, I'm going to go with um, Joe Cancelo yeah that's that's mine as well 
Man, man is a machine. Right Gregor, you agree with that one? Yeah, I mean, agree. I don't. I was watching. It was when was it? Last week, week before, when Newcastle played Man Man U, and they were saying Wan Bissaka is one of the best one-on-one defenders in the country. This, that, and the other. And Max Man managed to get past them three or four times. And yeah, yeah Cancelo. Uh, we'll just easy. do a, a centre-back partnership. Um, it's probably a little bit biased with the form of the room, but Stones and Dias are, are my two out of them all. Laporte's a, a top player, but I think he'll probably slot in the B team quite well. Um, but them two for me. I've got a £50 bet with my brother that um, Victor Lindelof is a world-class defender, so I'm going to have to throw his name into the hat, unfortunately. And I'm going to go he, Diaz and Lindelof. Not a chance. He is... Uh, terrible. He is absolutely <laughs> terrible. This bet's been running on for how, about How are you going to find out that he's world-class, It's one of those. I've made my bet. How, how are you going to find out that he's world-class, though? Oh, it's just until he eventually comes but good he... and he accepts <laughs> he's going to pay me out on 50 quid. <laughs> Nah, yeah. Diaz and Stones at the minute for me. I know Laporte's yeah. world-class, but the way Stones is playing. Stones and Maguire for England at the... Not Stones and Maguire, sorry. Stones and yeah, anyone Maguire, but Maguire. I, I think Maguire just looks lost at the minute. Cody, Stephen tries. Oh, um, God, yeah, Man, Stones, like. Stones and Diaz. And now they're scoring goals as well. I mean, they've been the reason that City have yeah. been so good this year, haven't they? They've solidified that defence if they're keeping Laporte yeah. out the size. Then absolutely those two. Um, I genuinely think that Maguire is probably the fifth or sixth best centre-back out of the combination. I think, he, I, th- I think he's still playing over Eric Bally because he cost them 80 million. Because he's got the turning circle of a Boeing 747. Yeah. What's going on? He's got a yeah. massive head. Slabby. <laughs> right. Uh, who's your left-back? Jimmy, who's your left-back? Who are you going for? Uh, I've got a controversial one here. Brandon Williams. No, although I would like him to come to the team. Well, Brandon Williams would sort of increase the hardness of this team because at the minute I think they're soft as shite. Um, Zinchenko, the Ukrainian centre attacking mid, yeah, the players left back. Daiga, who's your who's your stranger? <laughs> yeah, like I I really like Zinchenko, but I I think Luke Shaw has been Man U's best player recently. As um, a bat lad, man, well, he's not getting in. No, I, I think he's played really well, and I like him. And genuinely, on the basis that this is a combined eleven to suggest and to tick off the combined box, you've got to get someone from Man U in at some point. So Luke Shaw may well be my only Luke, nominee. Luke Shaw's my... He's he's my left-back. Haven't they got a really haven't they got a really dodgy third-choice goalkeeper as well, Man United, that you could put in a rival Scott Carson? Grant. Nick Grant. Who, held, Grant who held the ball up like the substitutes and got his 30 grand. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've gone with a, a midfield three. It doesn't have to be a, a case of um, like a, a hold and then two attacking it's just the best three midfielders um, I, I think KDB goes in for everyone I don't think there's the question about that is there no he yeah. just made my team you happy with KDB going in he's been out he's been out for a while I was hoping to get McTominay in there somehow but I'll let you have a, I'll let you have Chum Chum um, who, who, who's one of the other two that you've gone for oh it was a toss up between um it was a toss-up between Fred and Gundogan. I think they're both midfield maestros, in all honesty. So it was a tough one to call. Um, I went with Gundogan. Just easier. I don't know what it is. Just easier on the eye when you're actually watching him. Fred makes um, me think that I could still have a career as a footballer. Yeah. Was £50 say, million pounds this spent. And Fred is not very good. We'll make that yeah. decision a hell of a lot easier, Jimmy. Um, I've gone Gundogan and then I have stuck Pogba I've in gone there. Gundogan and I'd, I'd stuck Bruno in there and instantly regretted it because I remembered the stat that he doesn't play very well against the big teams. Um, 
I don't know. Man, Man U no. don't play well against good teams. Man U, since they got, since that Spurs game, what was it, the 6 1 or whatever it was, their record, they're scared, they're terrified whether that's the players have got scars or that's all they've got scars, whatever it is. Nil nil is what yeah. they would settle for every single time. In terms, and I know they've, they've only lost twice since November or whatever it might have been, but it, they don't look like winning games, certainly not big. I'm genuinely baffled that they are yeah, still second in the league. And you remember when Mourinho said that out of everything he'd won, coming second at Man City was his yeah. biggest achievement. Could have That's that's generally probably how we would feel as Man United's managers picking this um, team. What? Well, look, coming second in a two-horse race, yeah. you've got to take that. Um, I, I, I'm happy to put Pogba in, Jim. Have you got any other anyone else you'd, you'd, you'd go over Pogba? Love to get Scott McTominay in there somehow, but it's, it's not just not it. happening. Martin Tyler kept referring to um, Emil Smith Rowe as the Croydon De Bruyne. <laughs> yeah, did you? Yeah. The, the Glaswegian De Bruyne. <laughs> um, top three. Uh, I mean, left winger. Who's your left winger? It can be a mix. I'm not. I'm not overly fussed. But um, I, I've gone for Raheem. I think he's that. That would be my go-to. But what are their options? What are, what are Mares, the options um, Farhan Torres, Rashford. In in He's any order. Torres no, I'm just, I'm just giving you the options. Rashford, Torres, um, Rashford, yeah. Mares, Torres, like I said. Um, trying to think of Bernardo Silva for Man City players on the wing sometimes. Um, there's a there's a wide range of, of people that could certainly play We've missed, we've, we've missed people out like Fernandinho Man City B well. team would push Man, United, Man City first team for the title. If we, if we just agree now on Foden, Aguero, Sterling, that would suit me. Uh, I was going to go Foden, Sterling, Rashford. That was what I was going to go for. I'd go Rashford yeah, over man, Aguero, Rashford. but I did say Foden, Rashford, Sterling. So we can agree on them too, and I just think Rashford over Aguero Maybe this year is, is kind of under... Suits nicely that Aguero was an LBT. I don't think Man U have very good strikers. No, that's my. I don't think Martial is very good. I I don't think Greenwood is very good. I don't oh, think Rashford is brilliant. I know he's improving. I think he's okay. I think he's decent. I don't think he's what they. I think they need to be the team that go out and get the superstar Cavani striker. I like Cavani, but he's been injured, hasn't he, for a little while. He's mentioned think... about this week. Um, but he's old. He's what? What is he about? He's finished now. I think he's. Um, <laughs> I, I think they've signed him to try and improve Rashford and and Martial as well, haven't they? They've obviously signed him to score goals, but I think it's a point of he is. He's a proper striker, and he's on on his day he was anyway, and he still is now. But it's a case of can they can the two young lads learn off him? I think that's one of the main reasons. Uh, Every Martial season, is a terrible footballer. Every season, I'm on the lookout for the next one-season wonder, and I'm desperately hoping it's Mason Greenwood. He's gone. He has gone to absolute tits since Iceland, since he didn't get that girl to come back to the hotel in Iceland. Wow. It's really affected his form on the pitch. Phil Foden was stealing his uh, stats there as well. I don't reckon Mason Greenwood plays for any other team in the top ten. Four. Oh. Up front. Don't agree no, with don't, that. Agree West Ham? No, I like West Ham. Antonio, the way they play. You can like them all you want, but he gets in their team. No, with Antonio as their outlet. Um, They've just given them Jesse Lingard, who couldn't get in ahead of him. Yeah, but I think that was wrong. I think Jesse Lingard's a good player. <laughs> 
he's Chelsea, a good young, he's be, good young he's talent. Be than, um, he's not better than Shiru or Abraham or Werner or Havertz. No, however many you want to play. No, he's not. No, he's not. Who's worse value for money, Werner or Joe Linton? Joe Linton, Joe that's Linton, a really bad question. Place. I think the fact that you both paused for so terrible. long is a terrible answer. Big Joe's going to keep us up, though. Oh, Christ alive. I spent today wondering if he will come good after a season of championship football. And the answer was no. Yeah. Um, have we just agreed that there are two Manu, or was it three so Manu the, players the, made the, a combined The team is full as Edison and Goal, um, Shao Cancelo, Stones Diaz, Shaw, Gundogan, Kevin De Bruyne, uh, Pogba, Ford and Rashford, Sterling. And I assume, I, I assume I, Pep one, is our manager as well. You quick things that are criminal here. How Pogba's got in over Fernandez. And how Fatty Shaw's made it in at left. I'm happy that Pogba's in over Fernandez and Shaw. I think we kind of had this with Shaw in, otherwise we we would have had no one. So I've genuinely come in with a combined team of one Man United player, and that's Rashford. But I also think our Man City, Man City, if they were looking to get someone, I mean Zinchenko's played well there, but I think we'd go out and break the bank for a left back. I don't think Mendy's been as good as what we thought he was going to be. But Zinchenko's also not consistently their first no. choice is he whereas Shaw has become yeah. that now and is that because of Talas that they signed last summer well I don't know they quite often play Cancelo out on the left don't they and they let Kyle Walker play on the right Kyle Walker could be a backup goalkeeper Jimmy he's played in goal he has played in goal hasn't he not a bad goal what are your predictions for the game goal. what's the score going to be oh um, I think it'll be 3-0 Man City I think it'll just blow them away Three one. I don't. I don't think Man U score in a big game like that. Um, and I don't think City haven't got out of gear for a couple of weeks properly, and they've still managed to keep this run alive. I think they'll come out all guns blazing. And I think it could be a horror show. I'm going to go four, four nil City. Nice, nice little combo. Yeah. Mm. I think they'll blow them away. Who's your Who's your scorers? Um, give, give me a Give me a Paddy Power bet builder right now. Zinche- Zinchenko or four. Oh. <laughs> Luke Shaw's getting in, I. Gentlemen, as always, an absolute pleasure. Uh, once again, obviously, thank you to Brendan for his time. It was great to speak to him. Uh, we'll see how our predictions get on, what happens in Manchester. But other than that, gentlemen, Tinners, I hope that taste returns soon. Thanks. Jimmy, I hope your taste in females returns soon. Thanks, mate. Speak All soon. All the best. See you, lads. I'm the gap with the bass and drum, going around like bum, bum, bum. 